0: something inspiring when you listen to the garden question podcast hello i'm your host craig mcmanus russell camp knows what healthy garden plants love in a mulch in our 38th episode mulch Mulch, baby we discuss the benefits and detriments of some of the most common and exotic mulches available He talks about time-saving techniques that will give your garden a quick, easy, year-round visual pop along with providing a lot of good stuff for your soil. Russell oversees the horticultural assets for over 54 different school campuses on 1,501 acres of land, including 88 acres of natural grass athletic fields. 23 acres of synthetic turf and numerous irrigation systems for the state of Georgia Henry County Schools. They install over 10,000 bales of pine straw mulch each year. He also shares his successful landscape knowledge as an adjutant horticultural instructor at Southern Crescent Technical College. Russell holds a horticultural degree from ABAC, that's Abraham Baldwin Agricultural College, and a business management degree from Bellevue University. He is a Georgia certified landscape professional holding certification number one. This is episode 38, Mulch, Mulch, Baby with Russell Camp on the Garden Question podcast. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Russell, how does mulch impact a garden plant's health?
1: Mulch does a lot of things for a landscape. First of all, it kind of recreates the natural ecosystem that you find out in the forest, where the leaves fall, trees die, and they decompose. And as they decompose, that creates this ecosystem that benefits the plants, it's recycling. Mulching is an attempt to recreate that, really beneficial economically and environmentally.
0: What are we accomplishing with the mulch?
1: There's several things. The first thing is mulch insulates against temperature extremes. So you think of insulation in your home, in your attic, or in your walls that keep your home from getting extremely hot or extremely cold. As the mulch decomposes, and we're, of course, talking about organic mulches uh, such as tree chips or pine straw mulch or things like that, and there's several others. As they decompose, they introduce carbon and nutrients and microorganisms and enzymes that all benefit the soil and the root structure of the plants that it's protecting. One of my favorite things that mulch does is it mitigates weeds and mechanical damage. Thick enough layer of mulch and you pick your flavor will basically crowd out weeds. It will prevent weeds from growing in that landscaped area. And it also mitigates mechanical damage. And that means the machinery that is used to maintain a landscape such as mowers and string trimmers, the mulch creates a buffer and defines where the turf grass is and where the landscape beds are and keeps the machinery all of the shrubbery. String tremors especially can do a lot of damage to the bark, the trunks of shrubs and of trees. Anything we can do to prevent that is a good thing. And also, back to the weed issue, by preventing weeds with mulch, we're also minimizing the amount of pesticides, of weed killers that we're having to use in the landscape. For Henry County Schools, we do a very thorough job of minimizing our inputs into the landscape and mulching our, our landscape beds is far and away one of the best uses of our money for keeping down the weeds. Another thing that mulch accomplishes is that it minimizes erosion and evaporation. If you've got landscape beds that are not mulched, they could be either new or established. The rain alone will beat down that soil. It will wash the good stuff away. The mulch acts as a barrier for that erosion. It also will minimize the amount of water that evaporates just from the heat of the summer How does mulch change the aesthetics of a garden or a landscape? The reason people use mulch the most is because of the appearance. One of the things that turf grass accomplishes within a landscape design is that it unifies the look of a landscape. It kind of ties it all together. Similarly, mulches do that in the landscape beds as well. Especially if you use the same mulch consistently throughout a landscape, that will unify the look. And it also makes it neater and more attractive. It's just kind of a background or a foil for the, the trees and shrubs and flowers and plants that you've planted.
0: It really makes the garden or the landscape pop. It adds definition to the landscape. That line that's formed, whether it's a straight formal line or more of a natural curved organic line, that's to me, and from a design perspective, is a very important element in the landscape. That's one of your most dominant lines. I tell folks, if you do nothing else to your landscape but just find a bed line and put mulch in, you'll make it pop no matter what the plants are. That'd be an inexpensive way to freshen up and get your curb feel.
1: I agree. A landscape designer will use that junction in the landscape where the turf grass or even pavement meets the mulch, they will use lines created by that junction to guide your eye around the landscape that can direct you to see things that that they want you to see, or maybe direct you away from things that the designer doesn't want you to see. That intersection of mulch and turf grass or hardscapes is a very
0: important design element. You're right. What is your mulch of choice and why?
1: Well, there are a lot of choices out there, Craig, and it's funny when you talk with horticulturists or landscapers or people in the green industry about mulches, you almost get into Ford versus Chevrolet kind of argument or or um, Georgia versus Alabama kind of argument. A lot of it has to do with personal preference and what fits your situation. There's a lot of choices. My preference is to always recommend that people go with whatever is locally available so But somebody who is in, let's say, Western United States would not have access to pine straw, but they probably have access to wood mulch and quite a number of other things. When I went to college in South Georgia at Hayback, one of the things that was used at the time was a byproduct of pecan processing. Because a lot of pecans are grown there, the processing houses would sell pecan shells. They could be used as mulch. If you can imagine a flower bed full of empty pecan shells or hulls, it's rather woody. Cracking those shells creates a lot of sharp points. kind of thing that you did not want to tiptoe into the bed barefooted because it would hurt you. That's just an example of one relatively isolated thing that's locally available. I prefer pine straw for a lot of reasons. Pine straw is organic. It's available in great quantities. Some people who have a lot of mature pines in their own landscape get it for free, and that's the best price of all. It might cost you a little elbow grease, a little sweat of the brow. It's there for the taking. When you've paired properly and installed it properly and finished it well and if you've used fairly fresh and brightly colored pine straw and it's got that real pretty russet brown color then i think pine straw does the best i know that some people like wood chips i have actually used what i would call tree service chips that are just simply the byproduct of the local tree service where they dump their trucks it varies quite a bit obviously whatever they've been chipping that day it could be oaks maples or pines leland cypress or anything it's not going to be real consistent and there will little twigs and big chunks and and that sort of thing. Some people like the wood mulch that's been dyed or colored to make it more uniform and then some concerns about whether or not that dye is harmful to the environment or to the soil. From what I've read, I don't know that it is. For now, I'm saying it's okay to use. There are a lot of choices. There are organic choices like I mentioned, hardwood mulch or pine straw mulch. Some people even use things like mushroom compost or cow manure, horse manure. I don't prefer some of those because even though they check a lot of the boxes, they don't do very much for weed control. In fact, they become an excellent place to grow weeds. If you want a lot of weeds, then use cow manure as a mulch. You'll get plenty of weeds. There's inorganic mulches too that some people prefer. In fact, the house that I'm in now, the original owner, had mulched the foundation plantings right around the house with pea gravel. Looks pretty good. You only have to install it once. And pea gravel is similar to, say, marble chips or volcanic lava rock <laughs> that I've seen at the home centers. Those kind of things can look good. And I think the argument is, yeah, they are a little bit pricier, but you only have to do it once. And ideally, I would do them with an underlayment of some sort because it will kind of get lost down into the soil if you don't. But they don't add any any organic matter. Obviously, they're inorganic. They don't check that box. They don't help build the soil and and help the plants grow. I, I tend to stay away from the inorganic mulches altogether.
0: I've seen where people will take leaves and grind those up and put in. And I know you've talked about byproducts of the tree services where you can get them to dump those in your yard and use those. And they're all building the soil as they decompose. Is there a drawback to grass clippings?
1: There can be if they're not used wisely. And A couple of caveats with using grass clippings. Number one, you don't want to use them too heavily. You wouldn't want to get, and honestly, this goes with any organic mulch. You don't want to get more than about four inches thick. The finer mulches like grass clippings and maybe even some of the straws can actually tend to repel rain. They get really dry, much like a thatched roof would repel rain. The other caveat is the lawn from which the clippings were taken has had pesticides, some selective broadleaf weed killers. Applied to keep the weeds out, then there's a possibility that those pesticides might be transferred to your desirable plants that are in your landscape bed. Certainly, perennials, daylilies, hosta, redbeckia, those types of things would be impacted by a broadleaf weed control that had some residue on your grass clippings. I would be careful about that. The wise thing to do would be only use grass clippings that have been in areas where you don't have sensitive plants. If you've got mature trees or wide open areas, and obviously, the grass clippings won't present a problem.
0: On the flip side of that, too, is if you have weeds in your lawn and you put those in your bed, you could also introduce weeds into your bed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If you or whoever is doing the mowing is waiting until the weeds have set seed, then yeah, you're going to introduce weeds into your beds. Now, that said, a lot of the organic mulches, my favorite pine straw mulch actually has a high likelihood of introducing weeds. I've noticed many times where I've introduced woodland weeds into a landscape from the pine It's not 100% given that you can keep the weeds out just by using a mulch, but you're
0: absolutely right. It does help. No, in some areas of the country is used all the time. Maybe they're dealing with different type grasses than what we deal with around here. Fescues and bluegrasses tend to get taller than the warm
1: season grasses that you and I have here in the Atlanta area. And another thing, too, as far as turf grass management is it's always a good idea to try to return those clippings to the turf because there's so many benefits.
0: Yeah, you're recycling nutrients that way. Another thing about recycling nutrients would be the leaves. I mean, why do we bag leaves and haul them off when you could shred them up in a shredder or your mower and then blow them back in your bed?
1: Exactly. And then that's part of what I prescribe. That's one of our practices at Henry County Schools is to do just that. Sometimes you get into a situation, Craig, where there are just so many trees. You might have a an old established residence that has humongous old oak trees and not a lot of grass. And they might just overwhelm your turf area or your beds if you were to do that. Some people have a whole lot of trees and some people don't have any at all. Everybody's situation is different. I'm like you. I think it's very wise to try to blow those fall leaves by way of a lawnmower back into the beds and then put your desired mulch down on top of that and that just adds to the organic matter. The other good thing about mowing those leaves in is that they don't blow around nearly as much when they're mowed up because of the increased surface area they they break down a little bit more quickly.
0: And then when you were talking about mulch that you get from the tree trimmers I've seen it done where you put that down two or three inches and then you just top dress over it with your pine straw or a prettier mulch if you don't like the look of that and that's breaking down then it's introducing the organic matter back into the soil
1: yeah then that's a great idea i've actually used some other ideas along those lines where you kind of provide an underlayment to the desired mulch just to make your dollar go farther the soil doesn't care the plants don't care just exactly which flavor of mulch you use and they will perform better when they have substantial and adequate layers
0: of a good mulch Well, let's explore the pros and cons of inorganic mulch. You've talked about some already. I think a pro is, especially in areas where you have wildfires, organic mulch can be a problem. I had a client once that he insisted all the time that we put pea gravel, tried several times to get him to change to the organic mulch because of the benefits to the plants and and the damage pea gravel was doing to his plants because they were heating up in the winter, making the sap rise on the southern facing side of some trees and shrubs in his landscape. Then he would get a freeze that night and it would freeze that that sap because it was bringing them out of dormancy and you could see how it gabbed up the side of that tree called sun skull now the whole reason he wanted to do that is because he was formerly a fire chief in atlanta and i'm sure he had seen many many houses where he was on calls where pine straw or whatever the mulch was had gone up in flames and caught the house on fire for whatever reason
1: That's absolutely right. In areas where wildfires are prevalent, I'm sure have probably some pretty strict requirements as far as inorganic mulch around the home itself. And that makes sense. I mean, obviously protecting the home is of paramount importance. What I would do in a situation like that would be to modify my landscape. I wouldn't try to do lush, full, well developed, multi layered landscaping. It would be more on the low water input, what we used to call xeriscaping, use a fair number of plants and plants that would uh, tolerate the reflected heat that comes off of that uh, inorganic mulch like pea gravel or marble chips. And The reflected heat in the south is one of the big reasons why I don't prefer marble chips or pea gravel for a mulch.
0: They're visually harsh to me because they reflect a lot of light and if it's a southern exposure then just a lot of light reflecting back at you. Yes. Have you seen rubber mulch or plastic pine straw lately?
1: I haven't seen a lot of the rubber mulch. I did have an experience with a synthetic pine straw. That's Death is hideous. It is awful. Tried it around two of my schools several years ago on the insistence of a supervisor. It was awful. First of all, like other inorganic mulches, it did not contribute to the soil microbes or enzymes or the ecosystem. Now it did look fairly realistic and that was the one thing it had going for it. But what we found over time was that this synthetic pine straw was out in the landscape and leaf litter, the natural leaf fall that would come down would kind of get tangled up in the existing synthetic pine straw and you can't just blow it out. What we would have to do, we'd have to physically go in and fluff this synthetic pine straw by hand, almost as if you were putting it out fresh again. So that negated all the supposed labor savings we were going to enjoy. If you didn't do it, it just looked very unkempt and like you were neglecting your landscapes. The other thing was that as it would get moved around by the wind or by the action of string trimmers or foot traffic or whatever, when it would get out into the turf, when a mower would hit that stuff, it becomes a a little projectile, more so than natural pine straw. It was just awful. I actually figured out the break-even point on that stuff was 10 years. Oh, wow. So if we if we could have maintained it for 10 years without touching it, it would have paid for itself. That didn't prove to be the case. I think we let it go for three or four years, and we kind of kept reducing the area that we did that with. We'd scrounge around and pile it up and limit where we use it and would go back to the natural pine straw. And eventually, all the synthetic stuff was gone or we just removed it, I would not recommend that stuff at all.
0: The ground-up rubber tires took off or playgrounds for a while. That went by the wayside. I just don't see it anymore for beds. The same thought process as the synthetic pine straw and made it go away.
1: I haven't ever used that or run into it. I have seen it used for playground malt because of the impact resistance.
0: I think there's a huge shipping cost on that, too, because my understanding is that can only be done in the wintertime, and they do it in Canada, and the tires actually freeze, and that's really how they efficiently grind them up seems to be a trend now, especially in commercial areas, where they're taking river slicks, which are round, slick rocks about the size of softballs or maybe a baseball, sometimes a football. And they're using it as mulch around the trees and the shrubs, particularly at their entrances. Have you seen that
1: I've seen something similar to that, Greg. Some landscapes in my part of town where larger rock, you know, you might call them egg rock or or bigger, kind of mixed with boulders. I guess that has its place. certainly can look pretty good. If you're using light-colored stone, it's going to tend to uh, reflect a lot of heat.
0: I'm just waiting for somebody to get real excited and pick some of those up and start chunking them through the windows. Well, that
1: is a very big concern at a public school. We are conscious of things like that
0: as well. What time of the year do you prefer to mulch established landscapes?
1: Schedule it appropriately with the natural leaf fall. I don't think it makes sense to spend a lot of money on a mulch and get your landscape looking wonderful and then have all these leaves and straw and needles come down on top of that. I think it makes more sense to wait until most of that has come down. And that's been fairly recently in my part of the world, which is actually a little late. It's usually by early December, late November, big percentage of the leaves are down. And one of the things I do is when I'm beginning to prepare for all this, I'll just take a minute to look up and observe how much of the leaves are remaining in the trees yet to come down and I'll give it a number. It might be 75%. It might be 90%. It might be 100%. And kind of tell you're getting close. If I've got a high percentage of leaf fall, that I'm ready to go ahead and start the, the mulching process. And usually what I'll do is I'll tie it in with one last pruning. i go through my shrub beds and I'll pull any big weeds. If you've got tree seedlings coming up through the middle of your shrubs, this is the time to get it out. Do like a one winter prune to to shape them for the winter. Take your mower and mulch the leaves up, either bag it or use the mower to kind of blow them into the bed. Then apply your desired mulch on top of all that. Good thing your landscapes are looking good
0: for the holidays. How do you define your beds before you mulch them?
1: I prefer V-shaped trench around the beds. This will make a very clear distinction between the mulch and the turf grass. will also kind of contain the mulch, and whether you're using hardwood mulch or pine straw mulch, you can kind of tuck it in this trench. That'll help define it. The way I was trained to do this was by hand with a round point shovel, and it's very slow and tedious. You can get it exactly like you want it. Got to be very good with a round point. But there are machines now that you can rent or buy that will actually cut a V-shaped trench or groove in the landscape. They're about as big as a push lawn mower. You just have to make sure the depth is set properly. The correct way to use them is to walk backwards with them. Especially on a new landscape, I would lay out my bed lines with this upside down marking paint. I'd use what the utility companies use to mark underground utilities. I use white because that's not going to be confused with any of the other traditional colors that are used for specific utilities, lay out my bed lines with white paint, and then run the bed edger around the beds. It's got kind of a big, heavy blade, and it'll kick the spools up into the bed, and it'll really help get that well-defined look that we all like to see. You don't want to do that on hot summer day. It'll be tedious. Even if you're using the machinery, if you're using it after a rain or if you are able to water a day or two ahead of time, it'll really help the machinery operate a lot better. Even with a fairly deep trench, they have to be redone. Two or three years is about all you can get out of them. Now, you don't want to go too far and make them too deep, and I've done that. You risk twisting an ankle if you happen to roll your foot into one, or if the mower wheel catches it just right, you might scalp the grass. Too deep is not a good thing. So On the turf grass side, if it's two and a half to three and a half inches deep, fairly straight, maybe at a slight angle, sloping away from your landscape bed. And then the other side, kind of making a V is about all you'll need. Definitely agree with you that defining the bed with some sort of trench like that is absolutely beneficial.
0: One good thing that you'll want to do too and remember to do and kind of got close to it was the utility markings. You definitely want to call eight one one and get your utilities marked. We've cut those and a lot of times it's because they are where they're not supposed to be. And it's usually the cable TV. Cable TV used to not be a big thing when you cut it, but now it's a huge thing if you cut that cable now because so many people are dependent on working from home and that's the internet connection
1: right it's not just tv it's their internet connection as well you're absolutely correct call 811 before you do this because back in the day when i had my own landscape business i actually was with just a stick edger just uh, redefining a bit through a cable that was not buried as deeply as it should have been
0: that's changed too it used to be where if you cut a line they'd be out there within a few hours and get it back hooked up but now it it could be a week before they get back out there and hook it up you definitely want to be cautious on that after they marked it you need to visually find it it could be in an other spot.
1: Yeah. And if I could put in a plug for 811, I would highly recommend that before you plant a plant, I call in a locate on everything that we do that breaks the surface of the soil. And it might be overkill, but we have a lot of infrastructure at stake around these schools, including fiber optics and things like that. And we found through hard experience that those utilities are not always buried as deep as they're supposed to be. But one thing I've learned in my role as a horticulture instructor, I, I have taught this process of calling in a utility locate. The system in Georgia, it was the first one where utility companies kind of pulled together. It was the old Bell South, which was the part of what's now AT&T and Atlanta Gas Light and Georgia Power. They all pulled their money and set up 811 where anybody can call in and get a locate ticket and get all their underground utilities located free of charge. A little personal story here. I learned through the process of teaching my students, the way that this got started was back in 1966, I believe. It might have been 1965 in Hapeville, Georgia, a a suburb of Atlanta. Some grading work was being done at a daycare right in downtown Hapeville. And the loader operator hit a gas line and it caused the daycare center to burn down and several children and adults perished in that fire. Personal side of this story is my little brother and I were at that daycare just five or six months before that accident happened. And my parents happened to put us somewhere else at that time. So we weren't there when it happened, but we could have been that incident is what sparked uh, George 811. And I didn't realize that until I I started teaching it. And I I have to be honest, one of those, Oh my goodness kind of moments. I'm a big fan of George 811.
0: Yeah, really. That's actually the state law in Georgia. If you're, like you say, breaking the surface of the ground, you're supposed to call 811 and have your utilities market and we tend to be impatient sometimes and and not do that but that's what you need to do and it'll take three days sometimes to get them located
1: so worth not being inconvenienced by loss of utilities or worse having some terrible accident where somebody gets hurt or even killed
0: that's what's at stake more mulch benefits with russell camp after this TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. Okay, let's get back to mulch. What are your thoughts on above-ground edging?
1: I'm not opposed to edging. There are some materials that are better than others, I think. Commercial-grade plastic, there's steel edging. I haven't used a lot of them, but I have used a few over the years. One thing I've seen done, and you may have seen this too, Craig, in your line of work, is where you can take brick-sized pavers and create a mowing strip with one paver laying flat or flush with the turf, and another paver standing up on edge on the back side of that, holding back the mulch, and it's a place where you can ride that mower tire, not get in into your bed so much. I've got a little bit of that in my yard, and I'd like to do more of it, actually. Some other kind of edgings I've seen that I don't think are very smart are where people use large football-sized or bigger stone boulders, or it might be the segmented retaining wall pieces. In either case, they make kind of an irregular edge or, or a kind of a non-continuous surface, I'll say. There's a lot of little nooks and crannies in those circumstances that the weeds can grow and Sometimes you can't even get in those little nooks and crannies with a string trimmer. The answer is spray them out with a non-selective weed control. And then you've got a little dead patch and mud on your edging and that sort of thing. So I'm not in favor of those irregular type of edging. Materials loosely stacked large stone. Now, if you had some stone that was set in mortar, like a little wall or something, I think that would be much more serviceable and sustainable than just using natural mini boulders or something like that. But all in all, edging materials further the idea of creating your lines in the landscape and that sort of thing. They just can either add to your maintenance headaches or take away, just depending on the material that you use.
0: Yeah, and the way you execute it too. What are your thoughts on weed blocks like synthetic fabric Fabrics, plastic, newspaper, cardboard.
1: You know, that's a whole wide world. And sometimes there's some controversy regarding some of those materials. I have seen people in my own family, in fact, use solid plastic sheeting and then watch over the years as their trees would die Uh, in spite of my friendly, courteous, and respectful warnings. That ain't going to work. And the reason that's not a good idea is because water can't get through that solid plastic, obviously, nor can gases exchange in and out of that soil. That causes problems that's detrimental to plants. Then there's the, the porous weed control fabric, some of which are woven, some of which are called spun-bonded or non-woven, and those will allow water and oxygen and other gases to permeate and to flow both ways. I have heard people be just really opposed to using a weed fabric in the landscape because several years down the road, your organic mulches will eventually create their own soil essentially on top of the fabric and they'll grow weeds on top of the fabric. And then it's almost like you had no weed control measures whatsoever. Where I work, we use them quite extensively because we've just got so much area that we have to tend to that sometimes it's just better to try to prevent the weeds. We might get five to 10 years of pretty good weed control before it becomes an issue. And then we have the resources to just pull everything out and start over. That's just the way we manage it on that type of scale. Home landscape, for instance, I've been experimenting, I guess you'd say, with an idea that I've kind of borrowed from the permaculture crowd where they do something called sheet mulching, where they take basically old Amazon boxes and cardboard boxes and things like that and make that your base layer before you mulch. When I was growing up, we used to recommend using newspaper. Who gets a newspaper anymore? Newspapers are about a thing of the past, but there's a whole lot more cardboard out there now than there used to be. I'll flatten out the cardboard as much as it will go and lay it out around my plants and around my beds and then use my pine straw mulch over the top. A couple things I found out is number one, if you're doing this on a slope, I have needed to use side staples to hold it in place because it'll move around on you or blow around actually if you're not careful. The other thing is it's slick. If you're going to be walking on it, just be careful. You can lose your footing. That pine straw mulch on top of that fresh cardboard, it's hard to get some sure footing. The good news is that worms love cardboard. Cardboard will eventually break down and just become part of that soil ecosystem. It really gives you a leg up on the weed control because usually, at least in my case, when I do a new landscape bed, I'm really preparing the soil so it's really loose and I want those their roots to grow. So far, it's working out pretty well.
0: Really, what you're doing is a smothering technique. You're smothering weed seedlings that would pop up and they can't get light, you're smothering it with your cardboard. And I guess essentially that's what you're doing when you're putting your weed fabric down. Be on the other side of that as far as weed fabric, because I don't ever use it, don't recommend using it and think it's the worst thing ever in well, it's not the worst thing invented, but it's getting it's probably a second or third in my mind. There's two instances where it happened. Just really turned me off on the fabric. I had a customer that's put fabric in. And of course, we were cutting slots in that fabric everywhere we planted a shrub. And he spent a good bit of extra money putting that in with the thought that he'd never have weeds. About a month after we got it all in, he called me wanting to know why all this Bermuda grass was growing in his beds. And he paid to put that in. And unfortunately, Bermuda grass will find anywhere it can to get through it. Anywhere we cut a slot to put a plant in, it was popping through that. And then another time I was at a job site where we were planning on transplanting this tree. Way before we were on the site, they had put fabric down, put the mulch down. Like you said, it decomposed, but they didn't do one thing important. They put that mulch up against the tree. It developed a new root system on top of the fabric in the mulch there. Well, when we started clearing the mulch back and the fabric back, that tree was still totally in its root ball, which goes to a lot of other issues of the way it was planted. But it was still in its root ball, but all the sustaining roots were above that root fabric. Those two instances right there just made me not believe in it anymore. How do you determine how much mulch you need for a bed? First, start with the square footage of the bed. You measure the length,
1: multiply it by the width. You have to use a little bit of high school geometry sometimes to figure out triangles. And and it doesn't have to be exact, but you do need to have a pretty good idea of what your area is in order to know how much mulch to buy. Pine straw mulch, I can tell you with authority that about a bale per 35 square feet. So that's kind of the rule of thumb is that one bale of one square bale of pine straw will cover about 35 square feet, three or four inches thick. With a hardwood mulch, buy that by the cubic yard typically or in bags. And even in the bags, they've got a measurement on there. It's usually two or three cubic feet in the bag. And the good part about buying it in the bag is it'll, a lot of times it'll have a chart on the bag that tells you how much area that that bag will cover based on the thickness. So it's a little bit of high school math involved. One of the things about pine straw is that there is no standard size bale, kind of a a downfall of the industry. It's not something that's regulated. It's not like if you're buying a gallon of gas, a gallon of gas is always going to be a gallon by law. Well, there is no standard of a square bale of pine straw. So some people's bales are bigger and some people's bales are smaller. Honestly, the rule of thumb is, and this applies to a lot of other areas of life, you get what you pay for. So if you're getting a low price on pine straw, you're probably getting low quality and a small quantity as well. Pays to get pine straw that is fresh, which has that bright light brown color, is long needle, is relatively free of non-pine straw debris like leaves and cones and sticks and other debris. I have found, and I'm sure you can tell stories too about finding things in pine straw and other mulch, but I've found everything from cigarette wrappers to beer cans to snake skins to cactus to all manner of things in addition to chunky sticks and crushed pine cones and things like that. So basically, you do have to know the area of your beds. One issue I've run into occasionally is buying pine straw from people that I... And I don't mean to demean them, but I call them the pine straw gypsies, uh, the guys that just troll through uh, nice neighborhoods and look for people working out in the yard, either homeowners or landscapers, and just peddle the pine straw that they have. And I have been taken advantage of by a fast-talking guy who... Uh, had a different way of counting than I (laughs) have, So I learned my lesson to always count the bales myself one by one and uh, don't take the word for it. And I tend to be a very trusting person. I do count my pine straw when it comes off the truck, every bale one at a time. But that's just one of those hard lessons learned, I guess.
0: Now, the more prevalent is the round bale it market is two size, the square bale. Which, since there's not a square bale, how do you really know it's two times that size or two and a half times size the square bale? So, that's right. A property that we mulched with the pine straw last year took like 73 bales of the round bales, and this year it took 100. So, I don't know what's up with that.
1: I'm running into the exact same thing, Craig. I encountered the round bales, gosh, several years ago, and it was a novelty back then, and then they kind of went away, but they've made a bigger. Come back, and, and like you, I've been told that the round bales are uh, equivalent to two to two and a half times uh, a square bale, but we're just not seeing that. I'm paying two times or two and a half times the cost of a square bale. And I do think that as a rule, the, the quality of the straw tends to be a little bit better.
0: This was fantastic straw that we put out today. It was nice long leaf pine, which that's the preferred. If you can get long leaf pine fresh, oh, it's gorgeous.
1: Oh, yeah. And this is the time of year when they shed their needles. You can get fresh and brightly colored pine straw. Lately, at our suppliers, we found that, that the bales don't cover as much as they are marketed to cover, and they've been kind of on the loose side. I'm like you. I'm a little bit suspicious of that at the moment. We'll see how that evolves here over the next few months.
0: Well, it's kind of like everything toilet paper's thinner and narrow and not as long. and <laughs> costs twice or three times as much.
1: <laughs> That's right. It's like a half gallon of ice cream is no longer a half gallon.
0: Is there a such thing as putting too much mulch down?
1: Yes, there really is. You can create problems by putting down too much mulch. And I've seen that happen at the schools. When I first started, we actually used hardwood mulch and it didn't have a lot of guidance at the time. I wasn't in a position of leadership when I first started. Too much got put down. And and I would say as a rule of thumb that if you get more than four to six inches, and you think about this, the palm of a grown man's hand is probably around four inches or more. If you've got more than that, you probably have too much. And what I've seen happen is that organic mulch gets in stalled too thickly over time it accumulates. As it breaks down and becomes soil, that soil can hold too much moisture around the trunk of the tree or, or the, the main stem of the plants. Some thin barked plants it can really cause problems. I have lost some large landscape trees because of excessive mulch. Some really pretty Zelcobas, which have a thin bark, were lost at one of our schools. Oddly enough, crape myrtles don't seem to be bothered quite in the same way. It's funny, every species of tree handles negative things like this in a different way. But crape myrtles tend to would just create a lot of water sprouts down at that soil line, which is a problem aesthetically and maintenance-wise. But what I have coached is to leave what I call an air gap, just so the, the bark isn't touching the plant. If your mulch is so thick and so deep that you don't see a trunk flare, you've got too much mulch. It needs to be pulled back. If it's allowed to go too long, you could cause some permanent damage to that tree or that shrub, and it might even lead to the failure of that tree or shrub. I would always recommend to not get over four and You always want it to look fresh, and if it's already that thick, I would recommend stripping off a little bit, a couple inches off the top, and replace it with a couple inches of fresh, just so that it doesn't get out of hand in the landscape. Another common bad practice uh, with a hardwood mulch is creating what they call a mulch volcano, and that's where that hardwood mulch is piled up so high like a volcano. That's too much mulch. Some of the guidance I've heard for that it really makes sense, and that is mulch out, not up. It might make more sense to widen out your bed, maybe reduce the turf a little bit, rather than piling the mulch even higher. Think about it too, just from an economical point of view, think how much money you're squandering on mulch if you don't have to lay it down so thick. Always good to save money.
0: I've even seen that done with pine straw through the years pine straw would decay and build up in the volcano manner too. So yes. Another way to illustrate the root flare is to look at it like it's the base of a wine glass. That's what you want base to look like and not a candlestick. If you're seeing a candlestick going into the ground where it's just straight sides, you need to excavate around that tree and find the flare. And it's a good practice when you plant a tree is to find that root flare and don't plant that tree any deeper than that root flare because you, a lot of times from a nursery, you'll get it and they'll cover up that flare. So You need to expose it when you first start.
1: Oh, absolutely. Especially with with tree material that is uh, balled in burlap, sometimes that packaging, that burlap will cover up the the trunk. And if you don't peel that back and remove it at the proper time, then you're absolutely right. You can easily plant a, a tree too deeply and get it past that trunk layer. Have
0: you ever noticed how there's always seemed to be more mulch needed on beds where the shrubs are sheared a lot or pruned real heavy?
1: Yeah, just because you're not allowing the shrubbery to really fill out the bed, that has to do with plant spacing and how well it's laid out and plant choices and if you've got the right plant in the right place and, and that sort of thing. My goal with my own landscape and with the landscapes at the schools is to try to plan things in such a way that the shrubs occupy most of the space. Because over time, fill out and, and they grow together, they're going to occupy a lot of that real estate and you're not going to have to put down nearly as much mulch obviously have to do around the edges. And sometimes if you've got large beds of ground covers you know, like laripe, sometimes known as monkey grass, you'll just do the whole thing. And long term, my goal is is to not have to do a whole lot of mulch on good planting choices.
0: What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape?
1: One thing I I really like for people to do is to plan their landscapes well, even if they can't do it all at once, to value engineer things. By that, I mean, do things up front that will pay dividends later on. Like, for instance, if you're installing a new paver walkway around the back of the house or up to the front door, go ahead and install empty pipes that could be used for future irrigation or for lighting. That way, you don't have to dig up the sidewalk to install those other landscape features. I like to see naturalistic landscapes, landscapes that require minimal inputs in terms of chemicals and fertilizers. I'm not opposed to using any of those. I think they have their place, but they can certainly be overused. I see people planting things too close together. Even people who are supposed to be knowledgeable, spacing things properly or planting things a, a proper distance from the wall of the house or a building planted too close together that will pretty quickly, I mean, like within a couple of years, be so close together that they're going to start seeing some foliar diseases. Too many times I see designs done by very well-educated and certified landscape architects. Sadly to say, and I have a ton of respect for landscape architects, but sometimes I've seen work done that that it's like they have just loaded up the customer with plant material either to increase the price of the job or to make them look good instantaneously. And landscapes, under most circumstances, are there for the long term. They're going to be there for years and years and years. So I feel like they should be designed to last for years and years and years. At Henry County Schools, when I do a landscape renovation, I have a 20-year outlook. I found that over time, when I started looking back, we had buildings that would get renovated about every 20 years. I felt like anything I did needed to last at least 20 years and look good at the 20-year mark. So I would space things appropriately so that 20 years from now they're still going to look good. They're not going to be crowded. They're not going to be imposing on sight lines. They're not going to create security issues or somebody could hide behind the bushes and things like that. A whole lot goes into the thought processes of great landscape that you may not think about. And it's not just the way it looks, but the way it's maintained and how secure it is and longevity of it. They're all important.
0: What's your earliest garden memory?
1: I remember building a set of concrete block steps at my grandmother's camp's house in Haightville, Georgia. I know that that thing probably looked just pitiful. I bet I was eight or nine years old. They had enough blocks sitting around and they had this hillside. It was just red dirt. I don't know what possessed me, but I just started building steps into that hillside and then had the best time playing in the dirt. And on the other side of my family, my mom's side, my grandfather was an avid gardener. He was not a professional gardener. He had a love of flower gardening and vegetable gardening that he very definitely passed on to me. I love those things to this day. In addition to gardening in Georgia, they also moved to Florida, were able to do some different things down there, gardening with grandparents.
0: Why did you decide to pursue the horticulture profession?
1: After developing a love for it at the feet of my grandparents. When I was at Jonesboro High School in Clayton County, I got involved in the Future Farmers of America program, and there was two production greenhouses at that high school. One greenhouse produced foliage plants, a lot of hanging baskets, and the other house produced seasonal crops such as poinsettias, which are a fairly technically difficult crop to grow. Things like cut mums and cut dianthus for Valentine's Day, Easter lilies for Easter. We sold all these things to the school. That seemed like a fun thing to do, so I I got involved in that, consequently became involved in the contest. There was two horticulture teachers there, one of whom was Rex Bishop, and the other one was one of your previous podcast guests, David Brown. David Brown was one of my high school horticulture teachers. (laughs) I learned a tremendous amount of them. And through the contest program with FFA, we competed as a team in a couple of categories. And in both categories, we won the state and went on to nationals. So I went to nationals twice and FFA did very well. In fact, that second year, I'd actually begun my college at that point, but was representing Jonesboro High School. I placed sixth in the nation in Plan ID. Even now, that's where my heart is. That's my strong point, I guess, is Plan ID and I always enjoy identifying things.
0: Do you have a funny garden or landscape story for us?
1: I've learned over the years that if I say something with enough confidence, it comes across as believable. There have been an occasion or two where I might be driving down the road and somebody says, oh, what's that blooming over there? And if I don't know right away, I'll say, oh, that's roadsideia because it's growing on the side of the road. If I say it with enough confidence, a lot of people just kind of knit their brow and go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, roadsideia. Another thing I've become known for in my family is I will slow down a hike through the wood better than anybody you've ever known. Frequently, when we've been on hikes up in the mountains and trying to get to a destination with a a few of us, I'll have these moments. My family has even picked up on my phrasing. I'll stop and say, oh, my gosh, look. And then they just roll their eyes because they know I found something interesting, a heuchera. A Trillium, Arum, or something like that. It's like finding a long-lost friend out in a place you didn't expect, even though you really should expect <laughs> to find them out there. That's my family making fun of me, so they don't like to go on hikes with me unless they want to know what stuff is. They'll gladly stuff me in the car and let me take them to the Atlanta Botanical Garden so I can give them a guided tour, and I enjoy that too.
0: In your professional career, who has been your biggest influencer?
1: Ooh, um... That's an interesting question. I mean, I honestly have taken a lot from Rex Bishop and and David Brown from my high school days. On the horticulture side, both of them taught me how to learn about plants, about the names of plants and the methodology for learning those and retaining those and and making some sense out of it. In fact, I use those techniques even today when I teach uh, herbaceous plant ID or woody plant ID at Southern Crescent. There have been a number of business influences over the years that that weren't horticulture related necessarily. For instance, if you remember uh, Zig Ziglar, a lot of good advice. There's a whole lot of good advice about business and about living in general in the book of Proverbs in the Bible. On the business side, I remember going to a seminar that was held by a man named Phil Christian. I don't know if you remember him, but he used to do seminars for the landscape trade 20 or 30 years ago. One of the things that I remember that he said that has stuck with me, this is a quote, string trimmers are the most dangerous and inefficient piece of equipment you own, end of quote. I've used that to drive landscape design and landscape management. I try to minimize the need for a string trimmer, and you do that in a lot of ways, how you lay out your bedlines, you know, going back to the bedline idea, just how you manage your landscapes. That's probably some of the biggest influences on my journey.
0: What is your most valuable garden mistake? I probably make those every day. (laughs) (laughs)
1: There's value in making mistakes as long as you don't make them repeatable. I have been able to revisit landscapes that I designed 20, 25 years ago and see how things have worked out in a variety of of circumstances. And frankly, that's why I probably get on such a high horse about plant spacing is because I've made those mistakes, planting things too close to a building or too close together. For many, many years, I'll tell people when my designs go in, they typically look a little bit sparse, a little bit thin. Give them time. If you plant them well and maintain them properly, they will fill in, they'll perform like we we know that they will.
0: What have you recently learned that you didn't know regarding horticulture?
1: Gosh, there's always something new. And, and that's what I love about this trade is that there's always something new coming along. Now, there's always a better way, a smarter way, a less expensive way to do things. That's always evolving. I would say right now, my biggest lessons are coming in the form of technology. The way technology can organize and simplify so many things about our lives, about our productivity is an issue. If you've got your own business, there's an app for that. And if you want to identify a plan and if you don't know it already, then there's an app for that. I mean, there's an app for pretty much everything. One of the things I want to work on at Southern Crescent is using technology technology to build a database of the existing plant material so that uh, we can tag those plants with a, a QR code or a barcode and that students or visitors could simply scan that QR code and it would take them to a webpage for that particular plant. There's the technology of the robotic mowers that's very intriguing. I foresee a day might be long after I'm gone and pushing up daisies myself that the robotic mowers will be the primary way to get turf grass mowed. You think about about the implications of that. We could potentially see mowing crews that show up at night and instead of being a crew of two to four, it might be one person who has a trailer full of robotic mowers that are deployed at night, especially in commercial landscapes when there's nobody around or even at schools and they do their thing and then they get back on the trailer in the daylight. You know, there's nobody has to be subjected to mower debris that's slung by people riding on zero turns or that sort of thing. I think that's where I'm learning the most now is trying to apply this new technology to what I do.
0: I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have.
1: In my garden, I have a ton of work to do. I don't know about you, Craig, but but I found it hard to to do my own landscape
0: design. It is hard to do
1: your own stuff. Yeah, because you either don't know what you want to do or have new ideas all the time. Well, during the process of teaching landscape design, I decided to go ahead and do my own landscape design so that my class could kind of walk through the process with me. And I would show them what I had, and then that would give them an example of what to do. But the result was I finally, much to my wife's delight, I finally had a landscape design for my own home. And this was about a year ago. That has created a whole bunch of new opportunity to do work. It's already in the works when we began the COVID shutdown. That was my first project uh, where I just ripped out all the foundation plants at the front of the house and had to add some drainage and put all that back. And I've been real happy with that. Fast forward to today, I've got a fence contractor putting in a fence around my entire backyard. I've got a right out a one acre piece of property that's pretty heavily wooded. So the fence going through the woods kind of changing how I see my landscape because my property lines are defined It's kind of opening my eyes to possibilities. One of which is how much more stuff I can grow and not have to worry about the deer as much because they probably aren't going to come over a five foot tall fence with two dogs in the backyard.
0: Yeah, those two dogs will make a difference. Absolutely. Tell us your all time favorite plant. Gosh, Craig, that changes (laughs) from week to week. Well, this week.
1: My favorite plant is probably rhizomatous begonias, and there's a lot of variety in there, and that's one of those house planty kind of things that I dabble in. I've got a grow rack that I built from scratch that I grow rhizomatous begonias and even African violets, and I really, really am just amazed at the variety of colors and venation, leaf shapes, and things like that, and intrigued a little bit about the degree of difficulty. They're not super difficult to grow, but they are a little challenging, rhizomatous begonias which are a lot like and related to Rex begonias. And I've got a few of those too, but
0: that's, that's some of my favorites right now. Russell, tell us how people may connect with you.
1: Greg, I can be found on Instagram under the handle of at Garden Coach and I can be reached via email at russell at
0: southerngardencoach.com this has been episode 38 mulch mulch baby with russell count thank you russell you're awesome the goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time